0: Hey there, folks. It is John Hammontree here, and I want to welcome you to the final episode of The wreck interview Season 4. I hope you've had as much fun listening to this season as I've had recording it. We've covered everything from the origins of Southern hip-hop to whole hog barbecue, from the history of the Second Amendment to the roots of Southern language itself. But we are only just starting to scratch the surface of the millions of Southern stories that are out there. My guests today have made it their mission to collect many of these untold stories with the Invisible Histories Project. Josh Burford and Megan Sullivan are co-founders of the project, and they saw a gap not only in Southern history, but in the history of queer culture in America, and they set out to fill it. There have always been queer people in the South. For so long, so many of them had to collect and keep their own stories in private, and groups like the Invisible Histories Project are starting to bring those stories into light. One of the things that Megan points out in today's interview that will always stick with me is the number of people out there who kept scrapbooks and folders full of any news that mentioned gay people in the South. Even hateful, fear-filled reactions from the government reminded these Southerners that they weren't alone because there must be others out there like them if they were being written about in the press. And if you haven't figured it out by now, that's part of our mission here on The Reckon Review. To remind our listeners that they aren't alone and that we also don't have to accept the idea of the South that was handed to us when we were children. The South has always been queerer and deeper and more complex and weirder than the version that dominates the monoculture. One thing that happened for me this season that was a real surprise is I found out I'm gonna be a father. And I hope that my son grows up loving the South more than I did when I was a kid. And I hope that he knows that the South loves him back. When I was growing up, I looked around at the flags and the Mountain Dew bottles full of dip spit, and I thought, you know, this isn't for me. And so, like so many others, I fled north. And it took me years to unpack my own biases about the South and to start seeing it in all of its messy beauty. So I hope he's able to do that earlier than I was. And I hope that you're able to find a place for you in the South through these conversations, and also that you make room for all the other voices that make the South what she is and what she can be. Josh and Megan are doing incredible, important work, and this is one of my favorite episodes yet. It's also the first episode I was able to record in person in over a year, and there's more to come. There's so many stories out there waiting to be told. And look, if you want to help us come back for season five, please take a moment to share our show with your friends. Go on Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. It'll help a lot. So let's get started one more time on this week's episode of The Reckon Interview. Josh and Megan, thanks for coming on The Reckon Interview. Thank you. We are here to talk about the Invisible Histories Project, and we've talked a lot this season about storytelling in the South, and y'all have kind of set out to collect some stories that weren't necessarily missing, but have certainly been omitted or, or hidden. So tell us a little bit about the Invisible Histories Project and, and what y'all are working on.
1: So we're a 501c3 nonprofit, we're based in Birmingham, but we research, collect, collect archive and make community accessible lgbtq history in alabama mississippi georgia and we're moving into the florida panhandle so basically we're just trying to uncover the untold or slightly hidden stories and narratives of lgbtq people in the deep south
0: so we are officially calling the florida panhandle the the deep south yes
2: it is definitely like a Beachfront Alabama.
1: Well, there's a, a lot of, of connection culturally as well as actual people moving along the coast. They're all the way from New Orleans through Gulfport and Biloxi and then Mobile and then into Pensacola. You know, there's a ton of shared cultural experience there. And so I I do think, and of course going back and forth to different people's beaches. Um, and so I you know, I do think that there's a lot that is there. And if, if we wanted to represent Alabama and Mississippi. There's so much that happened, particularly in Pensacola, publications and events, and people just going there often as a as a safe space, particularly in like the 70s and 80s, that we would be missing a lot if we weren't there. So we, you know, we can battle royale about if it is the South or not, but it also made <laughs> pragmatic sense. Right. Yeah, it's a
2: pragmatic decision. <laughs> yes.
0: Did y'all grow up in Alabama or in the South?
2: We did. Yeah, I grew up in Anniston um, and lived there in lived there between there and tuscaloosa until i moved to charlotte and then came back to birmingham for the project
1: yeah i'm from sand mountain in the northeast yeah. corner where alabama georgia and tennessee meet so i'm, I'm quite a hillbilly very proud of that yay
0: <laughs> well what was life like growing up in, in Anniston and, and sylvania what queer history did you know at the time
2: well i mean I, in some ways i think i was super fortunate because my uncle uh, had come out in the 70s and so i grew up at least around other queer people and there are a ton of queer people in my family. Like, it is, I don't know, we want to make the genetic argument or what's in the water argument, but like, there were a lot, of, I got to at least see a lot of queer people. And so when I was younger, although I was definitely in the closet when I was in high school, because that wasn't a thing in the 90s to be out, I at least had a, a peripheral understanding that there was this community. And so, and Aniston is in a lot of ways, sort of atypically Alabama, because I grew up outside of a, you know, a military base. And so there was a lot of international people there. There were a lot of people from all over the rest of the country, and so it is and isn't Alabama, depending on like where you situate yourself in Anniston. So,
1: the, I grew up, you know, in Sand Mountain, and which is known as Meth Mountain. It's also Alabama Snake Area. Yeah. If you've seen that documentary, I would just like to clarify that that is Scottsboro, which is the valley. It is not the mountain. <laughs> no. We are not in that that documentary. We do have snake handlers, but that is not us in that documentary. So, clarifying that. Growing up, there was lots of queer people particularly as an adult you know I don't really keep uh, in touch with with folks where I grew up but I do know that a lot of people who weren't out or we weren't really talking about queerness in that way are very queer now um, like a, a lot of us perhaps a disproportionate amount of us particularly in my class and the class above and below me uh, but we didn't really talk about it it wasn't really a thing That was ever discussed and no um access or inclusion of any sorts of references to history or identity or or anything around when i was growing up unless it was negative
2: right well i think Anderson's interesting in the sense that it it exists as the geographic midpoint between atlanta and birmingham and so there's a lot of cultural crossover between the two i mean I, i my parents always tell the same story about they were both nurses and about doing they were doing a briefing on hiv in like 87 88 and one of the doctors said, well, you know, we're getting a lot of people from Atlanta that have HIV because we don't have those people here. And them laughing because the guy sitting next to them was a clearly out of the closet gay man. And the, everyone in the room turned to him and going, we don't have those people here. And he's like, yeah, definitely not. Not in Aniston.
0: Well, and that, you know, that seems to be the way that a lot of, I guess, culturally conservative people in the South will will react to queer culture is that it was somehow imported from atlanta or san francisco or new york as if it wasn't you know southerners who were going to those cities and uh coming out and and being part of queer culture there
2: well as if they didn't see gay people every sunday morning Mm -hmm. in their churches leading their choirs playing their organs you know being youth pastors or cutting their hair or doing all those things that are theoretical stereotypes except that we were kind of really good at them (laughs) you know like or on the on the football field or the softball field or the basketball court like we were clearly there as long as i think as we stayed in a very particular box as long as we didn't run for public office as long as we didn't try to be teachers they could still see us even though they were clearly ignoring us for the benefit i think of you know church musicians and you know hairstylists and whatnot
1: yes there's you know there's a lot of two that that gets ignored is the idea that you know southerners are always leaving and that there's no other narrative there that we aren't staying and forming our own communities that we aren't resisting in our own ways and that we haven't been doing this forever because we have and further people from other locations particularly in the northeast the west coast have been coming into the south usually thinking that they're going to teach us something and they're going to save us and you know carpet bagging and all that good stuff um and but then getting here and realizing oh my gosh there is a rich, diverse community of activists here who are organizing. It just doesn't look the same. And they have come in and learned a lot from us and yeah. then taken it back where where they are and replicated it there as well. So it's really been a give and take that we haven't talked about in a good, nuanced way. Right.
0: Yeah, we had um, Minnie Bruce Pratt on the show a few weeks ago. She, she said something to the effect of, you know, Southerners, may know how to, to resist better than any other population in, in the country.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, this, just the story, just the things that we're learning now, like Mississippi in the 70s, Alabama in the 80s, like North Carolina and Georgia in the 90s, like there is a solid thread of not just like resistance, but like radical liberationist activism that was happening all throughout those three decades that we get zero credit for. Yeah, Because it, it you're right, it doesn't look like Stonewall. It doesn't have to look like Stonewall to be politically relevant and resistant.
1: Yeah, and I know that age is not like the marker of success, and that we we fail ourselves when we try to say, "Well, something has to be from the twenties or the thirties in order to be significant." Right, but. Mississippi had its first statewide LGBTQ organization and eventually center in 1973. The Mississippi Gay Alliance started. They had a a newsletter that they put out that eventually grew into a pretty long running newspaper. The same is true in Alabama. Mm Ours here started in 1977 in Birmingham. It's called Lambda Inc. And they had a newsletter that came out uh, as Lambda Inc. And then it, it emerged into Shout. And then that became the Alabama Forum, which is the longest running LGBTQ publication in the state. So, you know, there's a lot of work that was being done here in these deep south, 49 and 50, Mississippi, Alabama, you know, that that gets ignored and overlooked. Even in Birmingham, when we talk to people in the queer community who are still doing the work, working for organizations, they're advocating and, and doing all this kind of really hard direct service, they don't know about Lambda. Mm-hmm. They don't know the history of it because it has not become an integral part of who we are as a community. And it's really only living with the people who were a part of it who haven't been honored and haven't been recognized for the work that they did that led to all of these things. Because Lambda led directly to Birmingham AIDS outreach. It it created out of that, it split. Um, And so we wouldn't have, you know, BAO and a lot of the aid services that we do here if it hadn't been for that original group of people in the 1970s.
0: Today we are talking on June 25th, and I saw on y'all's Twitter feed that it's the anniversary of the first um, Birmingham Pride Parade, which I think happened a lot earlier than a lot of people would realize way back in 1989. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and that was the parade. They'd been doing uh, festivals and things in Rushton Park, especially uh, for quite quite a while—about ten years, actually. They started was well, seventy nine mm-hmm. when they did the first one, and it was the folks involved with Lambda. And a lot of them in the beginning were very quiet. You know, they happened in small areas. They were through word of mouth or, or you know, publications inside of the center. That people would come to. But we've been doing stuff not that long after the first Christopher Street Liberation Day. So, you know, we're not that far behind Atlanta or New York City or California, any, any places like that. We were doing things. It just wasn't on the scale and size of some of the other places. And it hasn't been collected and, and kept. Like all of these things we're getting directly from the people who were there now. You know, they're they're just now over the last two or three years being given and and tried to collect them together, put them together to create a complete story about what did happen.
2: And the thing about that pride parade in 89 was that it was like it was a political march in support of people with HIV that they had to talk about people coming from outside, right? Like when ACT UP New York came to Alabama in 87 and 88, they stayed and learned about Southern organizing from Lambda and then went back to New York of what they had learned in Birmingham. And so that when you see the footage of that parade, which you can see on our website, like what you're seeing is a group of people who are connected to a national movement. They're making a statement about HIV, a local statement, and they're talking about the people who have died. They're saying things like we are connected to a history of resistance, connecting it to the Holocaust and the resistance of LGBT people in the Holocaust all the way back to the 1920s. I mean, that is a really well-informed, historic approach to a march that they expected 50 people and ended up with 200 in the 80s. I mean, that is amazing. And 200 people may not seem a lot now, but that is a lot of people who are out physically in the world. You talked
0: about connecting the LGBTQ movement to other historical movements you mentioned the Holocaust you know if this was happening in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s we're also talking about the same era when the civil rights movement that we know and learn a lot about in our textbooks—well, not as much as we should Now yeah. we know and learn more about in our textbooks than we do about the, the queer movement. And sometimes we think of those as distinct movements, but I'm hearing you say that they were in conversation with each other. I mean, I know Bayard Rustin was an openly gay man, yeah. but he was also at odds with MLK and some other leaders in the movement because of that. What else do we know about the queerness of the civil rights movement?
2: What you can see happening is that, you know, especially in the in the early part of the 1960s, when gay people, the the national movement for LGBT equality was was very present. They were marching on the Pentagon. They were marching at the White House. But that was a very small group of people. So many queer people were looking for a a way to get involved in civil rights. And so what you see in the history is people who were LGBT that were in Selma registering people to vote, marching um in Birmingham doing those kind of you know, being as a part of something that they felt like, well, in the absence of a movement focused specifically on LGBT, I'm gonna put my energy into the civil rights movement because I feel a kinship with what it means to be discriminated against. And so that the presence of queer people in the civil rights movement is is certainly there in the records because we were waiting as a group of people for someone to like spark up a national movement for us. And it was so hit or miss because You know, there just wasn't as much connectivity between the communities in the 50s and 60s. And so a group leading from D.C. and L.A. is going to have a really hard time inspiring a group from Auburn or Jackson, Mississippi, because we just were not as connected. Although we were, it just was not on the same scale, I think, that happens in the 70s. So it's definitely there. And, you know, Rustin, the thing about Rustin that I think is so frustrating, besides the fact that he gets rendered invisible, um, especially his sexuality, is that, you know, he walked away from the movement. Because he felt like his sexuality was taking away from the impact that they could have been having in places like Selma. And I think that that takes so much character to realize that I can't be a, a stumbling block to a movement that is so important. And the fact that he planned the damn March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, like, he sat in that room with his people and planned every bus and every speech and every, every person that showed up. I mean, that is, that is something people need to know, an openly gay Quaker Like, doing this kind of work is really important, and he gets the short stick everywhere, I feel like.
1: Well, There's also this notion that they're separate, as if queer folks aren't black. Mm -hmm. You know, as if, if queer people aren't all races, all ethnicities, and so it becomes like white gays versus people of color advocating for their rights. And that is such a narrow way of looking at it. And a lot of that is on white queer communities that are oftentimes extremely transphobic, extremely racist, because the idea of like heteronormativity, not to get too into that, is based in white supremacy. And these ideas of gender and how we perform them and how we relate to each other are absolutely tools of white supremacy. So we have to think and talk about folks through these really nuanced things, which you can't do in you know, a, a soundbite or a tweet, or even in high schools, as we see with a lot of these uh, backlashes against, you know, race being taught talk- by people who don't know what critical race theory is, by the way. Yeah, um, seriously. <laughs> that's, that's not what you're talking about. But, you know, we see all this backlash. And so it is inherently queer because queer people are all races and identities. And to say otherwise just erases a whole entire group of people and it forces people of color who are queer and trans to choose. Like, do you choose your racial loyalties or do you choose your gender or sexuality loyalties? And that's an impossible, unfair position to put people in. Yeah.
0: yeah. Well, and I have noticed, and I don't know if this is the case around the country or, or, or unique to the South or unique to Alabama, but, you know, there's a there's pride, which is going on right now. And then in the fall, there's black pride. And so, you know, is that is that a manifestation of that racism that you, you were talking about among some white queer people? Or, or how did that... Come about? I mean, there's we have that divide in everything in, in
2: Alabama. But. I mean, Black Pride festivals came out of a, a necessity in many cases because Black and Brown folks were left out of leadership positions in these larger, quote unquote, larger like Pride festivals. And so, like the creation of a, a creation of a Black Pride is is there so you can see that people are proud of multiple identities. And it's not in opposition to pride festivals because there are still black queer people at pride festivals. It's just a, another way of saying, you know what? The community is a lot deeper than just this one day where we're marching down the street. Um, there are all these other identities that should be celebrated. And so every black crowd that I've ever been to isn't, <laughs> never feels like this is just a place for people of color. It is a place for everyone to see what it's like for people of color to be free, to celebrate all the complexity of their identities. And I think we want it to be, you know, like, well, there's why we have all these different prides. Well, because it's an it's necessary because, I mean, truthfully, the so many pride festivals have just blatantly left out people of color and trans people. And so it is important that they have that space, but they're still very inclusive to all different kinds of people. It's just today we're celebrating black and brown queerness, which I think is super important. So,
1: yeah. And, you know, it's not just about leaving folks of color out it's also about capitalism and the way that you know rainbow capitalism has has taken over pride and this whole idea of love is love uh that the 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 first pride march that happened in birmingham was extremely political they were talking a lot about like uh, oppression and the discrimination that they felt as individuals and then also as a community and how joining together was a political ideal as as much as it was a communal ideal and and you know really talking about being unapologetic and joining together as these different groups, and I feel like Black Prides are more like that. Yeah. They're more of a celebration of the community <clears throat> themselves, and they're more of a celebration of activism and advocacy. Where our bigger kind of mainstream Prides are usually inviting in drag queens from Drag Race that are probably not from around here, you know, bringing in a lot of money, selling a lot of stuff. You know, having a family-friendly, non-cussing, whatever. I just feel like they're more connected to the roots of pride. And and not that they ne- that pride necessarily has to be a burn it down, throw a brick, but that there is a, a lot of that legacy still there in those spaces that is very much so missing in our mainstream prides. Yeah, the corporate prides.
2: And we settle for so little now, which that's what annoys me the most, is that the bar... Or what we're supposed to feel good about is like pathetically low i mean the i appreciate buying a rainbow t-shirt at a target if i'm there to buy you know face cream or whatever but like i don't know that that necessarily does anything to make me feel more liberated you know just because there's a mannequin with a oversized rainbow t-shirt on it and so it frustrates me that that's what we'll happily settle for when there are still so many things that we could be doing Especially if we're just going to get together this one time a year. I would really like that one time a year to be super useful. You know, it could just be celebratory. I'm happy with you going to the After Hours Club and watching an amazing drag show and throwing back some cocktails and doing whatever your, you know, your life choices are. But, like, you know, there could be other things, too. Mm-hmm. And I think you're right. I think the—I'm thinking about Charlotte Black Gay Pride. You know, that for many years, every single one of their Pride festivals included a town hall. And so, like, people would come and listen to the state of the gay black community. And, like, that is such an important part because white folks don't get to hear that, either because they're ignoring it or because they they don't have a place to see it. And so things like that are not in opposition either. Like, let's have that. Let's have a town hall and talk honestly amongst ourselves as queer people about, like, what's actually going on around here? So maybe we could actually do something. And then later we can, you know, we can all shop at Starbucks and, drinking unicorn latte or whatever the hell that thing is they had this year <laughs> with the sprinkles on it.
0: Y'all both attended the University of Alabama, is that right? Mm-hmm. What was campus climate like for, for queer people?
2: Well, I was in UA in the 90s. It was a fun time to be, I mean, I came out my, at the end of my freshman year at UA. Yeah, it was fun. The, the queer group then had just added bisexual into their title, so it was the Gay, Lesbian, Bisexual Alliance. There was a group of like really kick-ass radicals in charge of that group. They were pissed off. They were burning stuff down. It was an amazing time to be out. The campus climate, you know, it was, it was this weird little moment in time where people, like, wanted to be better about gay things. So I got asked to sit on a lot of panel discussions, you know, which we used to call, like, the zoo tour, where you would sit behind a thing that just said, like, gay on it. And so you were talking about, like, well, I'm gay, so, like, all the gays are like me, which is stupid. Like, that's not how that works. But it was fun. It was a little bit scary. I mean, to be honest, I had beer cans thrown at me from cars and people yelling things. But all that is tempered with the fact that the community that I came out into was so happy to have me. And they taught me so many things about what it meant to feel empowered by the fact that, like, congratulations, you just got a huge gift. And that gift is that you're not straight and that you don't have 5,000 years of cultural heritage to live up to. So do whatever the hell you want. (laughs) Wear a condom, make good choices, and hit the road. And so I'm like, that's awesome.
1: Yeah, I was there closer, like in the, the early 2000s, and UA was so big at that point. I mean, it was just, it is a behemoth. And and for I didn't come out until later. I was in the Department of Gender and Race Studies, so very insular. Of course, we were in Manly Hall, which was a terrible, horrible slave <laughs> owner. Yeah. But the the people that I knew were really amazing and doing a lot of work, and it was a smaller group, but... We were so insulated from everything else that we didn't really notice. I mean, there was a lot of critiquing of it, particularly in our classrooms and going and doing talks and things like that. But we were very, very communal in that. And, like, the, the yeah. resistance made you more connected. And I, I feel like as I've gotten older and I'm in larger communities where we're a little bit more vi- or a lot more visible and there's a lot more of us, it doesn't feel as connected it's almost as if that that environment that we were in brought us together a little bit closer and a little bit quick, more quickly than now when when there's, you know, lots of options and you can go get your target rainbow shirt and all that sort of stuff. I also don't read as clear like nobody ever assumes that of me, which is a problem within itself, but whatever life. Um, and so I've you know, never felt anything I, mean, I could be wearing a shirt that says hey I'm a giant queer and people will still be like hi how are you soccer mom let's go whatever you know
2: apparently we read as a straight couple and I, when yeah, we together I, my,
1: my, my straight lookingness is so powerful that it makes Josh seem straight. straight wow yeah. which is
2: I mean that is power
1: especially if you're talking about sports in public
2: I know right. which I try not to <laughs> and no one has ever accused me of being straight in public yeah. except when we're together
1: so when we're together mm-hmm. you know
2: would you and your wife want when we have dinner together yeah. like what do you and your wife want something to drink And i'm like what are you
1: talking yeah about? and i feel like that people walk away and are like do you think she knows her husband's <laughs> gay <laughs> <Right>? <laughs>
2: and they're like yes, yes yes she does Yes, she does She does <laughs> indeed yes
1: i'm josh's beard it's
2: fine <laughs> <laughs> i mean when i transitioned to working at ua instead of being a student it was there was that moment like where we were forming a, a group for faculty and staff and graduate students and a moment where the student group had gotten so big that they were able to make like serious waves and so there was this moment of like empowerment that was tempered by the fact that my last two years as a professional on campus were just fraught with homophobia and like literally like administration trying to get me to quit my job.
0: Why was that happening in those last two years?
2: I think because we were we were actually doing stuff. Like we had, you know, when we had Capstone Alliance when I was at UA as a as a staff person. You know, we were making real headway. Like, we had meetings with the president who was super supportive of our work. He was like, what can we do? We got domestic partner benefits. We got a change in the anti-discrimination statement. The students had advocated for and successfully got an office on campus. Safe Zone was growing. And the people on campus who did not want that to happen were getting very nervous that we were on the verge of something, you know, hold for surprise, a LGBT center on campus, which they absolutely did not want. And so there was a lot of pushback in those last two years because they got really nervous that we were on our way to something really progressive. And it was just a really difficult time to be a staff person on campus when people are actively trying to get you to quit because it's, they're like, oh, no, there's too, no, we're not going to, I remember hearing someone in a meeting say, we won't be San Francisco. And I was like, well, girl,
1: no well, chance. We ain't got heels <laughs> like that. Right. Also, like, you can, you can still afford
2: a home here. Mm-hmm. So we're not like San Francisco. More, well, granted, yeah, yeah football, sure. but. And again, UA has this amazing legacy. Like in 83, they have the first LGBT student organization, like in the whole state, made up by a group of community and students who are radicals. Uh, You know, UA produces probably the most successful Southern queer historian that anyone knows, John Howard, who grew up in a small town in Mississippi, who went to UA and has continued to write book after book about the queer South. Um, We produce writers, many Bruce Pratt. I mean, these amazing activists and people. So, it's that funny little thing about being from a small town in Alabama where people were like, oh, they, we don't have that here. We just have football and churches. And meanwhile, we're like churning out like radical queer historians and musicians and artists. So I don't know, Alabama, I guess.
0: And at one point they brought you in to train some of the advisory board or the board of trustees about pronoun usage. Is that... <laughs>
2: So we got, I, I do love this. I mean, my, my colleague Renee Wells and I were probably the two most vocal people because what do we have to lose? Who cares, right? But we got invited to do a safe zone training for the president's cabinet. And we were told that we would have two 15 minute blocks of time to train. And so we went in, we had everything prepped. we were like ready to go. And there's like a room full of fancy, you know, upper echelon folks. And so we're, we're doing the training and people asking questions. It's going really well. We hit our 15-minute mark because I could see the assistant to the president outside, like, you know, because they're busy. And we were, like, ready to go. And the president goes, no, 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 mm-mm, we're going to finish the training. We're going to do it right now. And I, we're like, okay, sir, well, let's finish the training. So we do the whole training, and we get to the very end of the training. We just finished the trans section of the training. I'll never forget this as long as I live. It's my favorite training moment I ever had. And Mal Moore, who was the athletic director at the time, was sitting at the table, and I said, does anyone have any questions? And he looks at me, he goes, yeah. I got a couple questions and I thought, Oh Lord, how is this going to go? And he said, so what you're telling me is that I don't have enough information when I just see someone to know if they are a man or a woman. And I was like, yes. And he goes, so what you're telling me is the only way I'll know if someone is a man or a woman is if they tell me that they are a man or a woman. And I was like, yes, that is exactly right. And he looks me dead in the face and goes, well, that makes a lot of goddamn sense. <laughs> and I literally t- slow turned to my colleague and I said, should we just go now? Like, is this the best it's going to get? I love that moment because it like, it really actually made sense. And, and again, the, no one in that space was like competitive or like, like mad at us for training, but people were actually listening. And it was like, again, one of those moments, like, well, if we can affect a change at this top level, especially with someone who is as old school Alabama, as Mal Moore then I think we could do and did a lot for people in that moment, which I've, I've never been prouder of anything in my life than him telling me that made a lot of goddamn sense to him. So
0: when did y'all decide that you wanted to go into this field of, of collecting stories of queer history?
1: So Josh had been doing this work. He did a little bit at UA and then was doing it at UNC Charlotte. I was working at uh, UAB and doing lgbtq services and outreach and stuff on campus and he came down and did a conference that we were hosting and talked about the work that he was doing in charlotte and so after we had known each other for, for quite a while yeah we just talked about the work and like could we do that here and we you know started having all these phone conferences and at the time skypes because zoom wasn't a mm-hmm. thing something uh mm-hmm. and and talking about how we could preserve this history here i think we were both really frustrated with so many of the services that were being provided for queer and trans people being completely ahistorical folks you know basing their models for public health and interventions off of other uh, diseases or other communicable issues as opposed to looking at how hit the the communities have been taking care of themselves by themselves for so long it's completely devoid of all of that so we thought you know, the work that we're doing feels a little hollow like it just feels like band-aiding how do we remedy that or how do we contribute to that and so looking at history and primary sources and what people did with less resources is a powerful tool not just to give voice to people but to help us know where to go because we know what worked and didn't work in the past and so we started working on it and in 2015 quite honestly no one was really biting No, people weren't interested. Universities were still like, libraries were like, "Mm," you know. And then 2016, the thing that shall not be named happens. (laughs) And all of a sudden, people are interested. I won't give that man thanks for anything, but there was interest suddenly, particularly in the queer South. The South is sexy now. We know that people are funding us finally. People are trying to come in and do things for us, which is not cool. But we got bites we got interest from people saying yeah we want to do this work let's let's go and let's do it let's let's collect this history and let's put some actual money behind it and then support it institutionally as well
0: yeah what types of stuff are y'all collecting i mean is it is it just boxes of files what what type of stuff
2: i mean i would be totally happy if it was just boxes of files because that's what i'm very comfortable using but we're collecting organizational records um we're collecting meeting minutes foundational documents posters flyers you know the sort of the things that we produce as we are creating organizations and and events but simultaneous to that we're collecting individual people's histories too so queer families in alabama mississippi and georgia um individual people who were involved with one organization but only for for a short amount of time because everyone has a piece of the puzzle and we have to sort of put it all together so besides the documents um we're collecting photos We're collecting diaries. We're collecting letters, um, T-shirts, drag dresses, banners from pride parades. Uh, The ephemera is great. Buttons, necklaces. I mean, right now we've got crowns and (laughs) jewelry in the office from drag pageants and from Mardi Gras balls. And so it's probably easier to say what we're not collecting because at this point, every single piece that we bring in is just more information to add to the story. And Megan's right, like right now... So much of the history exists only in the minds of the people who were participating in it at the time. And so we have to be able to build a material history as well as a, you know an oral history together so that people can, because we say all the time, we're not here to tell you what the history is. We're here to provide you with the tools so that individual people can begin to understand their history from their perspective. Because I'm not interested in telling someone how it happened. Like, here's all the information we have about Lambda. Or about the first pride. Now, you come in as a scholar or a student or a community person or a reporter and sit down with the material and figure out for yourself, like, what it means, what it means for you or for the community. And there's so many stories there in every box of files. I mean, again, I know I'm a geek, but, you know, I love a box of meeting minutes. Yeah. But really, the, the nuts and bolts stuff is in the publications. I'm thinking about the fact that, like, Auburn had a Gay Liberation Front publication as early as 73. Little tiny Auburn at the time in the 70s had this radical publication and there's so much we can learn from that, from Upfront magazine from Pensacola from 71, which was only five issues and was a little bit strange, but it is so beautiful to see the attempt to build community and so there's so much that we'll take.
0: Coming up after the break, more from Josh Burford and Megan Sullivan about the stories they found with the Invisible Histories Project and ways that you can get involved. Hey guys, if you've been listening to this interview and you wanted to jump in with ideas of your own, then you may want to sign up for The Conversation, our weekly newsletter that dives into some of the topics that we raise on the show and other issues in the South. You can sign up for it at reckonsouth.com slash newsletters. I'm curious about, you know, kind of the power of story in, in objects. What are some artifacts that you all have found that have been personally resonant for you? Uh, what's the most powerful thing for you that you've touched?
2: This is such a hard question for me because it's always changing. I mean, for me, the, the piece that has meant the most to me is this one-off, one-issue publication from Huntsville from 1974 because I was teaching queer history at UA. This was like 2009, and my students are reading a book that was published in the mid-'70s called Out of the Closets, and it's one of the very first ones where the stories are by regular people, like by teachers and lawyers and whatever. In the back of that book is a resource guide, and under Alabama, there was only one entry, and it was for Huntsville and the publication, which has the unfortunate name of Gay Seed. We're just going to leave that right there where it is. But um, yeah, I know what they meant planting, but whatever. And so as soon as I saw that, I thought, holy shit, there was something from Huntsville from like th- the early 70s. It took me a decade to find a copy. And it, we got two copies from a donor in Huntsville that found it at a thrift store. As soon as I was holding that in my hand, it was everything that I had taught from that point to the point that I touched it to realize that these people had put together this really radical, artistic, political, which is basically a zine, more or less, and that we had two of them. And now I could give those back to the community in Huntsville and to my students and all these people. So just knowing the work that went into that one little tiny publication, it just means so much to me to be able to have it safe and it'll be digitized and it'll be online and we'll have backups of backups So it'll never get lost again like that just means everything to me
1: you know there's a lot of things I geek out about and I get super like research happy about about what they could mean for challenging our understanding of the deep south but I think as far as evoking like emotional connections in a lot of our elder donations there's this folder and and that they've kept like in a, a closet or in a filing cabinet and it's just some random clippings of anything about gay people that they've seen sometimes all the way from their youth and a lot of it is very bad, yeah. like going to hell, you know, the AIDS plague, like, I mean, really, really bad uh, displays of what queerness is. But they kept them because it was, oh, there are others like me, particularly people who are from rural areas. And and to see that happening so often really does, you know, say that you this was so important to you then that even though it was negative, You kept it because you weren't connecting with the negativity. You were connecting with the other people that existed that were being referenced there. And it was so important that you've moved with it and you've kept it and you've added to it over the years. One of the things we tell people is stop using plastic. (laughs) Don't put things on plastic. It's disgusting. It degrades. It ruins things around it and it smells terrible, but it also doesn't have magic in it. And I'm not going to get all woo woo here on you. I'm like, I have no human feelings really, but uh, I mean, that
2: pink strap in the original flag was for magic. I mean, there it so, goes. So, yeah, there's so, appropriate yeah, yeah.
1: on brand. Yeah. Hashtag on brand. <laughs> um, and so, the 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 power that we have, particularly when sure we work with young folks or even older queer folks who just haven't seen themselves represented in that way, when you give someone an, an object or a banner or even a piece of paper that was handwritten and even hand typed, there is power in it there's power in holding and touching something that someone else has made that transfers through like you get that sense of who they were and and the effort and the skill and the labor is there. It's like you're directly connecting to that person as opposed to a digital file or a banner printed on some horrible PVC. So like digitization is wonderful and it makes things super accessible but there is power in objects and like Josh said, touch them till they're threads because there's power in it. We need to empower, that's our primary goal, is to empower Southern queer and trans folks about our own histories. And let's do that, let's, so that these folks can make the history for the future.
0: Yeah. Maybe funny is not the right word, but what, I mean, what's, what's the object that you found that surprised you the most, or made you laugh the most, or?
2: Oh God, that's such a good question. Well, so there was a, we got a box of VHS tapes in um, a couple of months ago, and they they were labeled as like drag performances and so we stuck one in the vcr because yes we have a vcr which is probably the most expensive piece of equipment we have in the office (laughs) because it costs a fortune but we were watching one of those tapes and there was a it was a drag show but it was like a butch lesbian drag show where they took these really super butch lesbians and then like fem them up and had them do drag and i was like i didn't even know that was an option And that made me so happy because they were up there just like performing their butts off. And I I just love that so much.
1: I mean, other than the puns of which oh, gay folks in the 70s and 80s, loved after, a pun. chef's kiss, the top of the top of the game right there, like it is something we have to bring back. Yeah. I love a good pun uh, is the videos that we got that Josh was talking about. There's some there's some interviews with with different people in the community and just Southern storytelling. There's this woman named Wanda and she was involved with Lambda and she's talking about like, she's from Coleman, Alabama. For those of you who don't know where Coleman is, uh, Google it. And so, um, you know, a lot of issues around Coleman and, and with racism and and homophobia and, you know, she talked about coming to Birmingham to get away from that and what people in Coleman thought of her. And she was like, yeah, I'm a queer, thank you. (laughs) <laughs> and, uh, like, and I'm proud to be gay, and it's just so deep. And she's wearing like a Marlboro hat and like a a, a wife appreciator and, and smoking. smoking indoors, and, and <laughs> it's just really lovely. And then there's this other woman who talks about being on a stage and doing drag. She was a drag king, and her mama and daddy and everybody was there watching her, which is another thing we don't talk about is familial support. That's right. And she's up there doing her her you know her performance and everything. And I believe this was in the uh, late 80s, and a police officer came in and arrests her for being on stage. Well, her mama got up and started beating the cop. <laughs> she got in a full-fledged fight with them, and they both get thrown in the police car. So both her and her mama ended up going to jail and have to get people to come get them out because she was like, you ain't going to mess with my baby like that. And so like those kind <laughs> of Southern stories are just so fun and so deeply queer and Southern, which we think can exist. But they do feed each other, and I, that's, that's like my favorite thing, just sitting there watching people tell these stories. Oh, yeah.
2: It's so good.
0: As we wrap up, it, you know, it does seem like it, it's often a, a one-step-forward, two-steps-back approach. I don't know if it's just in the South or if that's a universal thing, but polling seems to suggest that even in the South, even among Republicans, support for same-sex marriage and things like that is increasing. But we're also seeing, you know, a whole slew of anti-trans bills You know, when I was coming through high school, there were pride groups on campus. They um, participated in the homecoming parade. And then now I'm hearing, you know, from my little Birmingham suburb of Mountain Brook that suddenly parents are cracking down uh, and upset about pride in schools. And so it seems like there's been a backlash to that progress. What are some of the issues y'all are seeing right now? Is it, you know, is it harder? Is it, easier for, for
2: folks? Uh. I mean, in the totality of the last 50 years since Stonewall, have things gotten a tiny bit easier? Absolutely. There's no question that we've made strides. I mean, the South is literally the home of the four most important queer civil rights cases in the country, from, you know, Lawrence v. Texas to the Bostock decision of 2020, right? So, yes, there has, ostensibly there has been progress. The The dilemma is that when it comes to trying to attack us as a community the cyclical nature of this is that those who dislike us or openly hate us or want to destroy us will always choose those in the community who have the least amount of clout um due to socioeconomic status or the fact that there are you know no currently trans identified people in the alabama senate to advocate for trans people and so it's That cycle happens over and over again. It happened in the 50s. It happened in the 60s. It's happening again. What I find the most distressing about our rah-rah, about how much things have gotten better, is that even though our youth are coming out much younger, I mean, when I came out at 19, that was three years before most of my contemporaries had come out, they're still coming out into a world that doesn't have LGBT centers in it. They're coming out into a world that they don't get queer history in their textbooks. And if they do, it's like pathetically small. And So, in some ways, we haven't really come as far as we would like to come, because we've spent the last 20 years focused on these narrow niche issues and not looked at, you know, what, what, it, what we could be doing on a much larger scale. I mean, I want trans kids to be able to to play sports, but I also would really like them to have health care first. I'd really like them to be able to go to a doctor and to get the things that they need to be healthy. And so I, sometimes I just feel like we're carting before the horse for a lot of things because it's so much easier to get flamed up about an issue you know I'm thinking about when I was in North Carolina you know it was the trans bathroom bills and all that and you ask trans people on the street they're like I mean yeah I mean I would like to be able to use a bathroom but also I would like to be able to get my actual name and pronoun on a driver's license so that I'm not harassed literally every time I rent a car or get on a plane and so we've just got we've gotten so narrowly issue focused we can't see the big picture anymore and that frustrates me Because there is so many big picture things we need to be doing. So, I don't know.
1: I think it matters on who you're asking has it gotten better for. Because has it got better for middle class to upper class, white, cis, gays? Absolutely. So much better. And and a lot of the blame, of course, always is a systemic issue that we put on other people and the systems that we live in. But a lot of the blame is on us as well. Because we have sold out people of color and trans folks and poor folks to get access to heteronormativity, to grab at marriage equality as a hallmark of success at the expense of other people. Because hypervisibility might be great for your gay wedding, but it's literally murdering black trans women. Right. That hypervisibility and that awareness is increasing rates of, of violence against trans people of color at astronomical rates and that's not being included in you know the hrc platform or maybe it is now but it wasn't in the beginning or in your you know marriage equality push or your love is love people don't need love they need food and they need shelter and they need protection from violence and a steady income and so like we're seeing things disproportionately affecting queer and trans communities of color working class and poor people that we're not talking about collectively. We don't talk about how rainbow capitalism is harming people financially and, and cutting people off from social mobility. And we need to have those deep conversations that are really tough because then we have to take blame. We have some responsibility and we're culpable for making changes instead of just showing up and waving a flag and saying, yay, we're gay, I'll, You know, we're, everybody's human or whatever other thing we want a slogan we want to throw out there. And so I think that that particularly for Gen X and millennials, we've done a very poor job of being the transit of knowledge between elders and young folks. And the onus is on us to do better. We've we've got to do it better so that we can make it better and get at some of those more difficult topics and really address them either statewide and legally or by creating rich and diverse communities that protect and insulate ourselves.
2: And, you know, we can do better because we have done better. Yeah. The history proves that we have done better. If you look at queer liberation platforms in the 70s, their platforms were trans rights, housing. They were anti-nuclear weapons. They were anti-nuclear power. They were pro-environment. They were Mm anti-Vietnam. We somehow managed to do all of that and still be queer at the same time. So if we've done it then, why the hell are we not doing it now?
1: Yeah, like in, even in the, the 50s and 60s, yes. the the, uh, the connection between communism, socialism, and queer rights was so inherent. You, I mean, socialist organizations were being targeted both for being socialist, you know, in the Red Scare, but also for being queer. That's right. And vice versa. Queer folks were getting targeted because they were assumed to be communists. And so there's such a deep connection in particularly uh, advocating for capital change and capital reform. That we have completely disregarded, so we can go register at Target. Right. And, and and do all of these things. And not that getting married is inherently bad, but that we're not being critical of each other and our own community values.
2: Uh, completely. I, I would, I mean, I want joy in the movement too. I said this yesterday there's no movement without joy in the movement, but we can't sacrifice everyone else just so that we can have a parade. We just can't, not anymore. And the fact that we're continuing to ignore, The astronomical rate that trans women of color being murdered in this country is it is it's distressing as well as depressing to see it happen but we can do better we absolutely can
0: if there were you know one or two places in the south or in Alabama that you think people should visit to better understand you know queer history in the south Mm. do those places exist and if
2: absolutely right here in Birmingham all you have to do is go to the Birmingham Public Library special collections archives you can ask to see any of the material that we've donated continue to donate to them our colleagues at the alabama state department of archives and history have a, a growing collection of queer textile materials as well as other things and i mean there are organizations the, the reston center in montgomery would be a great place to go to volunteer um volunteer at any of the pride festivals around this around i mean Gadsden is having their first pride this year which is amazing to me um troy had a pride for two years and so And also, quite frankly, support queer business. Like, find out where your queer local businesses are and support them. And I think there's ways for people to see that. While we, on the archiving end of this, continue to build these important collections so that people can understand even more, there are things that people can do.
1: Yeah, I know Atlanta is the obvious choice, but because it is so large, and it's very southern, it is a very southern city. I don't like when people take that away from Atlanta. Atlanta is southern. It's the south. And so... There's been a ton of history there as far as organizing and activism, and because of their urban, large urban scale, they've been able to be a little bit more visible and have access to resources to preserve their history, so Georgia State University has a huge huge queer collection and a lot of it is online you can check them out their archivists are amazing and so if you're in atlanta i would definitely check that out head over and and go look through their archives because they've got stuff from atlanta but then all over the the region as well
2: Ooh, you should go to the national nashville public library and ask to see their gay publications file it's got some amazing stuff in it they let me see it one time it was awesome
1: and unc charlotte
2: unc charlotte where i built these collections yeah Mm -hmm. they have tons of stuff there they're doing some amazing work in Arkansas, mm-hmm. um, in New Orleans. I mean,
1: Roanoke, Virginia. Roanoke,
2: Virginia has got great stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, places
1: where you wouldn't think, but there's a lot of folks doing small efforts in their own communities.
2: Lexington, Kentucky had the second site for the National Registry of LGBT Spaces after Stonewall. So, I'm super proud of them too.
0: If people have documents or resources or anything like that that they want to give to y'all how do they do that
1: yeah they can check out our website at invisiblehistory.org or email us at contact at invisiblehistory.org um, or they can check us out on social media we're invisible histories on instagram and facebook and then we're ihp south on twitter
0: great well thank you all both so much thank,
1: thank you. you yay
0: and that's our show folks and that's our season special thanks to josh burford and megan sullivan for their time you can find their work at invisiblehistory.org. And thanks to all the wonderful guests who gave us their time this season. I could not have done this show without the Edit Audio team, and especially Kanika Codrington. They put in so much great work week after week, making the show sound sharper and reining in some of my long-winded rants. Thanks so much for all your hard work. Thanks to Alexander Ritchie for writing and recording our original theme music. Thanks to Sydney Batten for help with booking, transcription, and so much more thanks to Rebecca Walker-Benjamin, Madison Underwood, and Lily Jackson for help with social promotion. And thanks to RL Nave and Kelly Scott for pushing me to make this show better and to launch a newsletter. And look, if you're missing this show while we're on hiatus, you can sign up for that weekly newsletter at reckonsouth.com slash newsletter. It's called The Conversation, and we'll keep exploring ideas like this week after week after week. And there's over 60 episodes waiting for you in our back catalog that you may have missed. Help us bring our show back for season five by leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars for five seasons. And as we said at the very beginning of the season, the South's got something to say. But I want to thank you folks for listening. Love y'all. Thanks for reckoning.